Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. I'm here every week with authors and experts to expand our appreciation and understanding of the animals that share the planet with us. To hear earlier episodes of this show and download podcasts of other informative Pet Talk radio shows I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media, Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. The Radio Pet Lady Network also produces the Dog Film Festival, which celebrates the love between dogs and their people and the rescue groups that bring them together. With a grant from the nonprofit Petco Foundation, I'm taking the first festival to dog lovers in cities across the country. I'll be back in New York City with the second annual festival, October 15th at Symphony Space. All the information is at dogfilmfestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a privately owned pet food company that uses people food to make food for cats and dogs in their family's human food facility. Pouches of their cats in the kitchen, their more economical BFF, best feline friend, and all varieties of canned Waruva for cats and dogs are made with the same care and specifications used to make food for people. Waruva's owners want to feed your pets and their own dogs and rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, for whom the company is named, with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat. I have three amazing ladies with me here today. One is in London, Gabriella Russell, who's made a movie that is so unusual that's going to be in the Dog Film Festival October 15th, Dogs, Guilty of Jealousy, a fascinating science project, really. Susan Wydell is going to be here. She's the adopter of Little Red from the movie The Champions, one of the Michael Vick fighting dogs. It took years and years and years, and she gave a, has given a great home to Little Red. And Stephanie Matera will be here from the Alliance for New York City's Animals, which is the beneficiary of the Dog Film Festival and helps 150 groups around New York City doing rescue and shelter. We're going to talk about the Wheels of Hope and what that is. But Gabriella Russell in London, England, congratulations on your wonderful film being chosen Thank for you. the Dog Film Festival. <laughs> Thank you. I was really impressed as much by the style of the filmmaking as the very interesting topic. Are you a filmmaker by profession? I am now. I'm just starting out um, as a researcher for kind of factual uh, factual television programs. But oh. I studied natural sciences, and then I was making this film as part of my wildlife filmmaking master's course. So oh, my, my goodness. Well, you know, wildlife, one doesn't think of the domestic dog as wildlife. No. But, <laughs> but I will say that, that this clearly had a scientific or has a scientific point of view and bent yeah. and deals with a topic that I don't know about in the UK, but in America has just recently been acknowledged as a kind of, uh, what should we say, proper topic. What emotions do yeah. dogs feel? Is that true there as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I chose it as my as the topic for my final film. Uh, it's getting a lot of. I mean, I think people are just recently recognizing that pets are worthy of scientific research. Yes. Um, and there's a lot we can learn about them, and obviously we've evolved with them for so long, so we can learn about ourselves as well. Nice. Um, so I wanted to capitalize on that kind of 
popularity at the moment. Yeah. Well, you have great skill. Obviously, um, MMA and, and, and that sort of science means you're quite a, a brainiac, if you will. But you also have <laughs> great artistic skills. I'll tell you that you. in the hundreds and hundreds of movies that I looked at for the Dog Film Festival, when someone's already a very accomplished filmmaker, which, quite frankly, I thought you already were, so really kudos on that, or just has a great eye and great technical skill, there were shots right from the beginning that were like, oh, my God, she shot that dog eating out of a clear glass or plexiglass uh, yeah. bowl shot from beneath. That was so yeah. cool. When did you think of That was of, very cool. Tricky to get, how, but it was and, fun to get. And what made you think of doing that? I mean, you were. it has a very good voiceover, and it's explaining the sort of point of the film that I'll let you explain. Mm-hmm. But what made you – I mean, it's like saying to an artist, why did you use red or yellow? But how did you get the idea, oh, I know, this will look really amazing and, and give a great camera angle and be visually fascinating? I, I mean, I think one of the things, obviously, we had input from our tutors, and one of the things they said early on was um, it's, it's, a, it's a pet film, so it's something people are familiar with, so you want to show it in a new way. You're trying to make people look at pets differently, so you want to make them, you can also help show that visually. So I was just trying to think of anything that seemed vaguely weird or creative, and then I, was, I think I was, my dog was just eating, and I was like, oh, well move that into a glass bowl, and then you can you can see it from underneath. Um, well, that's really yeah. cool. And if that's your dog, that's a really cool dog. Is it part Scottish? Yeah. Is it a Scottish deer hound or something? No, she's a, she's a Labradoodle. So a Labradoodle. Oh, my. Well, she doesn't um, look like the ones in America. The American no. ones look, look more like a standard poodle. Yours looks like a, a kind of a small Scottish deer hound or an Irish yeah, wolfhound or something. Yeah, people often think she's an Irish wolfhound, yes, but she's yes. a bit smaller than them. So, uh, yeah, no, she's a first-generation one, so I think she got a random strange mix of the genes. <laughs> well, they, they, it's a very good mix, I thought. I really liked yeah. it. Uh, so where, do you, where does someone go to get a degree like you've gotten? I'm sure other people might think, well, I would like to do that. That sounds like a yeah. very cool thing to study. It was, it was, a, it was a really great course. It was, um, it's at uh, the University of the West of England, which is in Bristol, and so it's perfectly situated for it. That's the centre of natural history. Uh, production companies there's loads of independent ones and the BBC Natural History Unit is there so we got a lot of talks by various um, producers and for the film as well we each had a a mentor at the BBC mine was Alex Griffiths um, really helpful yeah Um, so it's it's in, it's, Bristol is the place to be for natural history filmmaking. And what, um, how incredible yeah. to have this whole support system of professionals. Yeah, really, really great. And obviously, you know, a lot of it is about contacts and things, but also yes. you get to learn from these people who have been doing it for years, and they're the best in the industry. So that was really amazing as well. Well, now, um, no wonder that your your own desire got um, supported or had little had little wings underneath its wishes, yeah, right? of course, yeah. So, so let's, let's talk about guilt and jealousy because it's a funny title, Dogs colon guilty of jealousy, <laughs> yeah, but in fact, I did struggle to think. Of no, it was title. good. It was good because, in fact, obviously, jealousy isn't some. Well, I guess it, it, it is a deadly sin or something. But dogs mm-hmm. don't know about the Ten Commandments. But guilt and jealousy are two things that, on the one hand, people have always dog trainers, even and certainly owners, think their dogs feel guilty, which has been yeah. disproven. But also, until recently, it wasn't believed that dogs could feel even grief, much less jealousy or mm-hmm. envy. So, so talk about how you came to explore those two emotions in a dog. Well, I think, I mean, it's funny you said deadly sins because that was the original starting point because I was trying to, I wanted to do something popular science so that was, uh, 
kind of a way to get, catch people in is like the seven deadly sins of dogs. And then again, <laughs> I realized jealousy and guilt are the ones that people really mostly talk about when it comes to dogs. And dog owners will say, yes, my dog definitely feels jealous and definitely feels guilty. But I wanted to explore, you know, whether that's us uh, imposing mm-hmm. our own emotions mm-hmm. onto them or are they manipulating us by making us think they're feeling those things um, and all sorts of stuff like that. And so... What I mean, what I came to think out of it, and also in the film is Dr. Paul Morris, who studied a lot of this and was really exactly. great at explaining it um, on camera. And it's kind of, it's more, I would call them, people think they're uniquely human and they're very sophisticated, those emotions. But I would say they're really more just social emotions. Yes. They're emotions yes. we need to navigate our social world. And it makes sense that humans have those more more profoundly or because we're so social we're one of the most social animals on earth but dogs are also very social right. and they've evolved with us and they've evolved to communicate with us and they do that through their emotions so i don't think it's such a stretch to say that they do experience those emotions probably not in the same way as us but it has the same effect they act guilty to appease the, per- the yes. person they have wronged and that is what our guilt is as well so maybe we think of our emotions as more sophisticated than they are and really they're not that special they're kind of just instinctive and social animals will also have them kind of well you know you put that incredibly well this is very funny this is going to make you laugh there's a very fancy jewelry store in east hampton it's actually all mm. along the, the the long island coast called london jewelers ironically called london jewelers mm-hmm. it's a beautiful jewelry store it has a, actually owned by a woman who does so much good doing for animals, she's paid for all kinds of dog houses to be put yeah. across Long Island for animals that are left outside around the clock. In any case, uh, I had a husband when I was living in East Hampton for a long time who had behaved poorly. And um, <laughs> a friend of mine, actually one of the sponsors of the Dog Film Festival, Diane Sachi, who's a, a realtor out in the Hamptons and a very yeah. funny, brilliant woman who used to be a psychologist and, and had a whole team of uh, occupational therapists at a psych ward in New York City before she retired to the Hamptons to work around the clock in real estate. And she said, well, did he really about this misbehavior? She said, I guess it's time for the I'm sorry counter at London yeah. Jewelers. So yeah. it's very <laughs> funny that you should say appeasement because we think, well, hang on. If a person feels guilty, they don't cower and put their tail down and hide underneath the table. Mm-hmm. But really going to the I'm sorry counter at London Jewelers is a human yeah. form of showing that guilt slash appeasement slash please don't hit me or leave me. Exactly. Or I mean, I think it's out. exactly the same. It's, it's trying to maintain that relationship that, and you've done something wrong, so you try and yes. fix it. Yes. And if we didn't have it, you know, nothing would work. You would fall out with people all over the place, you know? Right. And so it's very, it's very clever to have pointed out those similarities in a way that makes people both have a better understanding of their dogs but also understand mm-hmm. our similarities and the, the, the gap between us isn't so great in understanding yeah. what drives us emotionally. We just have to rephrase it, sort of. Yeah, and I think you also mentioned how um, dogs feeling guilty has been disproved, and part of that is people, you know, they're not feeling guilty in themselves. They're just responding to us telling them off. Right. But a lot of, you know, if a lot of humans as well, if you started telling them off, they would act guilty. They'd be yes. like, oh, I must have done something wrong. So it's, it doesn't ha- have to mean that it's different. It's just you look at less. Yes. Yeah. You look at a child that grows up in an abusive or um, 
or inconsistent household where every time the father or mother comes home, make pretend they're drunk, make pretend they're strung out, they don't have money, they're exhausted. Mm. And the minute they come in, the first thing they say is, you didn't clean up your toys or you haven't done yeah. your homework. So every time that parental unit comes home, that child yeah. is already cringing, expecting to be criticized or berated. Exactly. So yeah. same would be true of a dog. Let's say a dog with too much energy, not enough stimulation, not enough outlet for it, and also teething, who's managed to find many different things to teeth upon mm-hmm. in the house. And so every time the human comes home, there is some kind of beratement, and so the dog is already cringing in anticipation. What's been disproven is that the dog knew as he was eating the couch pillow, this yeah. is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's what's been disproven. People say yeah. he knew he did the wrong thing. No, he's anticipating you behaving in a really mean, scary yeah. way, right? Yeah, yeah. But I still, yeah, I think that's definitely true. And then, but doesn't it doesn't still doesn't mean the behavior is less that's for right. certain things. It that's can right. Guilt, yeah, it's difficult. It's, but it's an interesting area of research because it's so hard to untangle everything. Right, and and people do impose, so they want to believe that dog knew better because, gosh. Yeah. Last week, I told him not to eat. A f- I, I was angry when he ate the sofa cushion. Now he's eating the other one. He's How about this one, Gabriella? He's doing it to spite me. I mean, yeah. this, is, this is, you know, maybe, maybe they do feel guilt or express guilt, and they certainly are jealous and envious and, and, and like mm-hmm. the Aesop's fable, you know, the dog with the bone. But they, they don't have emotions like spite, I don't think. No, do you in I your would, work? Yeah, I think there is a line to be drawn there. And also... Between guilt and shame, there's yes. these subtle distinctions, yes. and I think there's probably a line drawn there, but, you know, it's worth exploring. <laughs> well, I don't know if you have these um, so-called funny dog and cat videos in the U.K. Well, of course, <laughs> the Internet is universal, so you probably do. I'm pretty sure we have, yeah, we yeah, have and a lot. <laughs> I dis- and I dislike them greatly. There's one that's actually a whole series of shaming videos about dogs that is yeah. leaning towards this idea that dogs should be shamed by society, like put in the stocks or had a sign put around their neck, you know, made to sit in the corner with a dunce cap sort of thing. And and so dogs doing foolish or uh, forbidden things behind our backs and then Mm. shooting a video of it and showing how bad they feel or or how bad we feel about it afterwards is really missing the point about that relationship, wouldn't you say? Yeah, Yeah, um, I think... Uh, they're, they're just they're funny to watch and I remember I mean I went through loads of them in research for this to kind of get some inspiration and things but yeah it's not it's not necessarily linked or anything it's just the they they have learned what face to make which makes right. us stop telling them off and maybe even laugh you know if, if not in the moment yeah. later in a video and that's confused by people with a sort of what's really going on as opposed to a form of so-called entertainment. Um, yeah. I, and I'm just sort of a stickler for for helping people be amused and be entertained and also be educated and not be taken off into the weeds. As many of these things take yeah. you off in the weeds and suddenly you're, you're drawing the wrong conclusions. And I think that the reason I have your movie Dogs Guilty of Jealousy in the – in the themed program called Love Makes the World Go Round, Who Mm -hmm. Rescued Whom, it's not specifically about, oh, look, an adoption or, you know, Mm. the challenge dog that gets the good home. But it does have to do with loving dogs enough and that relationship being loving enough that it bears looking at and it bears understanding in in a more intelligent way. And your movie really does that. I mean, it really expresses that love, you know? Well, I mean, I left. It's it's sort of left slightly open ended yes, at the end of the film, yes. 
And I think my main goal was to, people are so familiar with dogs, and then, like you said, people jump to conclusions yes. about why they're doing this or that. And I wanted to make people just think about it. Like, whatever you conclusion you come to, just think about, well, it could be this or it could be that, and do I really know everything about my dog? No, there's there's so much to them. They're their own magnificent creature, and there's loads we can still learn about them. They're not just... They're not just a pet, I suppose. Right, and and they they aren't just a recipient of whatever ideas or behavior we want to visit upon them. The other thing, I think, is the individualization of dogs. There is dog with a capital D, and then there's your dog with a lowercase d, and each of them is quite different as well, right? I mean, there's some dogs more sensitive than others to reprimand or or less prone to eating your sofa. So yeah. they're never going to be in that situation. What about exactly. your your gorgeous dog? Did uh, did anything tremendously bad happen or even mildly bad that would have provoked guilt or, or jealousy? During well, during the film, I mean, she's done all sorts of naughty things. Of but, course. Um, usually when we're out. So again, like you said, we try not to tell her off because then she just thinks we're coming home and that's what happens yes. when we come home. Yes. But um, during the film, it was actually quite hard filming the guilt experiment with, with Luna because... We obviously we put her in a situation where she was gonna do to get her to do something wrong, so she would act guilty. Yes. And then she does it, and then telling her off, and it was just it felt really awful. It, you felt Aww. like I was, it, it didn't feel right. So we, I was planning on doing it a few times to get the best the best shots, and then after one time, I think it was like we'll just we'll make do with that one because you felt too bad about making her because she was sort of confused as well because she knew she'd done something wrong, but she knew that. It wasn't the normal, yeah, it was just a bit confusing for us. So. And, and what's interesting is, in you describing that, that's exactly what people do. They set their dogs up for failure without mm. even understanding they've done it. Then they get mad. Now, everybody's confused. You haven't really, yeah. you haven't increased your human canine bond. You've sort of fractured it momentarily. Yeah. Luckily, they're very yeah, forgiving. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. <laughs> but it's great that you that you had that experiment and and realized that, I mean, I'm now realizing, as you say it, that many of us, one of the ways to avoid behavior in your dog that you don't want is mm. to not let them, not put them in that position, whether it's lunging at another dog on the leash or yeah. destroying property in your house when you go out. There's a way to manage yeah. their environment so that you don't set them up for problems which yeah. they, they don't need to deal with necessarily. Well, Gabriella, the film is fantastic. I wish we had Thank you very much. buckets of money and could fly you and some of the other wonderful British and Australian filmmakers to New York, but that yeah. isn't in the cards, at least early on in, in the It's Only Dog Film Festival number two. But I hope what, at one point we're going to get to London, in which case, of course, you will be front and yes. center. And, and Luna will come, too. We'll find a dog-friendly theater in exactly. London. Exactly. She would love to do that. I was thinking I should just get her a passport and she could go as well. But oh, it would be great. We'll come to you. We'll come to you one way or another. Yes, perfect. Th- thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this great movie. Please make another with dogs at some point in your young career yes, and, and be sure. back to us. All right? Thank you right. so much. And Congratulations again. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. We'll be right back after this quick word with Susan Wydell and Little Red. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado who has created innovative litters for the health of all members of the family with low-dust litters that allow everyone to breathe easier. Precious Cat's newest health monitor litter has broken new ground by allowing people to find the early signs of kidney disease in their kitty cats and intervene before damage is done, prolonging the quality and length of a cat's life. 
This show is also brought to you with the generous support of Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. However, all fish oil is not created equal. The Nordic Naturals difference is that their oil comes from Norway, where they use responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness. I am back with Susan Wydell and the story of Little Red, the, the pit bull who had come from the Michael Vick's fighting uh, group, group is not the right word, fighting farm, and featured prominently in the movie The Champions that you heard about a couple of weeks ago. Susan, welcome to the show, and especially thank you for opening up your life not only to Little Red, but to the rest of us that are prying eyes and ears and hearts. And, and we want to know a little bit more about how she came into your life and, and how you wound up being one of the recipients of the kind of very happy ending of a complicated story. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Tracy. I um, have been following Little Red for several years before I adopted her. She was one of the dogs that was rescued from Michael Vick's dog fighting operation, but she was not able to go directly into a home. She was one of the 22 dogs that went to Best Friends uh, Animal Sanctuary in southern Utah. And Best Friends took the 22 most difficult dogs to place, not because they were vicious or because they were mean, but because they were so shut down and so frightened. And Little Red was one of those dogs. So when Best Friends um, took the dogs. I followed the story in the newspaper, the New York Times, and I was also a frequent volunteer at Best Friends, and I knew one of the visits that I made. She was there, and I saw her picture, but I never saw her, and there was something so compelling about her eyes that I, I just could not forget her, and I started to sponsor her through Best Friends and help provide for her care, never thinking that I would ever be able to adopt her. And um, every year when I went back, I would inquire about her. And one year I asked if I could see her and they said, oh, of course. And so I was taken to the unit where she lived and I saw her with her companion who was a big, um, oh, just a big, beautiful beefcake dog. And his name was actually Beefcake. And Beefcake <laughs> protected, he protected Little Red. She was very, very shy and very fearful around new people. So that year, all I got to do was just see her and um, have some pictures taken of her. And the next year when I went back, I asked if I could volunteer with her. And the caregiver said, yes, of course. So I worked in her unit for a week, and I got to see her every day. And I wasn't allowed to touch her because she was still classified as what Best Friends uses uses as a system as a red-collar dog, which means no direct contact with volunteers, not because she was mean, but because she was under a court order. So I volunteered with her, and I was already in love with her, and when I actually got to be with her, I just thought, oh, I would so love to adopt this dog. And on the last day I was there, I went to the volunteer, the adoption office and asked about her, and frankly, I thought they would laugh at me and say, you? You've never had a pit bull in your life. No, of course not. And they told me that no one else had applied to adopt oh. her. 
there were other people who were interested in her, but no one had applied. So that was in March, and that day I put in my application, and she still had some hurdles to pass. She had to pass a canine good citizenship test, and it was difficult for her because one of the components was to have a stranger approach and try to pet her and not have her shy away, and she's a very shy dog. So um, once I submitted the application, I um, would check on her every month or so, and um, her caregiver and the trainers at Best Friends decided to give her a run-through to see how she would do on the components of the test and what she needed to work on. So they gave her the test, and she passed every component. Without extra help? Without, just without any the, extra help. I'll be darned. Just, just from having spent the time in this safe haven where nobody pushed her beyond her own emotional limit at the time for how much she could tolerate of human interaction, Right. That is exactly right, Tracy. You know, I, what's very moving about you and about her in, in the movie The Champions, which everybody now knows is is the centerpiece of the, the last film program of the day on the second annual Dog Film Festival, October 15th. What's moving is this little dog had so much to fear and probably some very good reasons to fear people. And just by quietly and calmly giving her a chance to discover without being rushed that nothing bad would happen with people, she was able, in this very safe setting, and I'd love you to describe what a unit is because it sounds kind of like prison, but Best Friends is so the opposite of that. And you were clearly very touched by how much how much deficit, emotional deficit she had, nothing to do with her being a danger, but that the world seems so dangerous to her. Do you think there was something in your own background, your own personality or people or animals you'd known or other animals that you'd had that made you particularly empathetic about that? Yes, I actually do. Um, I spent um, a good part of the 30 years that I lived in Chicago I was a lawyer and working in government, but I was also volunteering with children who had AIDS. And I saw children who were living um, really moment to moment, no family, desperately ill. And the only thing that I could do for them was just be with them. Uh And when they had good days, you lived in, in the moment with them. And seeing Little Red... It was very much like that. You had to live in the moment with her. Yes, she was filled with fear. But when there was an opening to connect with her, it was it was a good thing to take that opening. You said it best, I think, not to push her, not to take her beyond her limits, not because she was aggressive, but because she was so shut down. Yes. I have never heard Little Red bark. I've never heard her growl. I've had her... In fact, in two days will be her fifth anniversary with me. Congratulations. Thank you very much. September 19th is our special day together. That's the day she came home. And so I I think that there was something so compelling about her. I have always adopted older dogs. I've adopted special needs dogs. I've worked with special needs children. And she just felt right to me. It just felt like I could give her something that she needed. And she was um, 
Uh, you could just see the sweetness in her. I don't know how to describe it. When people see the film, they will know. You see it in her face. Her face is so expressive. And um, people say eyes are the windows to the soul. But with Little Red, her ears are. Aww. Her ears are just... They, I can tell how she feels by looking at her ears. They move in so many ways. And there are some shots in the film of her watching, and you see her ears start to move. And yes. she's, um, I'm, you know, just getting the mail. We just drive to the mailbox every day. We live in a rural area, and so I take, sometimes I take her with me, and when I get out of the car, she watches, and I always feel like she's just slightly nervous that I won't come back. Even though you're just and, there at your own mailbox. I yeah, mean, one does have that mailbox. sense in the movie that what you come across as is an infinitely patient person not looking for, uh, I mean, none of us really looks for a give back from our dogs, but so many of them give it nonstop. Want to play, want to kiss, want to lick, want to go here, want to go there. And Little Red's like, ah, that's okay. No, thanks. I'm just going to hang out real quiet and low. I'm going to stay real low down under all the radars. And you live in a, in a beautiful remote area of Wyoming. You were you were the general counsel for the University of Wyoming before you retired, right? Yes, I was. So you were a woman dealing with all kinds of intense, uh, stressful, the harshness of the human condition. And, and when you talk about your earlier volunteer work, back in the days when AIDS was considered possibly contagious to someone who would be around or touch an adult or a child with AIDS, I, I commend you for the compassion and the, the mother Teresa-ness that has clearly been part of what has been the way you've given back to human society. But to see your generosity towards her and acceptance of her, it's quite an interesting message to the rest of us because in a kind of measurable, tangible way, Little Red isn't able to give back a whole lot of of sort of measurable stuff as a dog to a human. And yet for you, it's a lot because you watched her come out of this terrified little shell and creep out of her shell and you celebrate those moments, not the big overall picture of a bounding happy dog. Hi, how are you doing? Welcome home. It's so different than that. And, I, and it's, very, it's very humbling, I think, to see the level of your patience and devotion. And I'm sure you would be the one who says, oh, well, I get so much from her. Truly, that isn't what comes across. It's that there are some really fine humans in this world, and thank goodness for people like you. You know, I really believe that Little Red suffers from PTSD. Oh, no doubt I about it. She was completely traumatized <clears throat> during her five years with Vic, and I think that Vic and his cronies tried to make her mean. Yes. And they were not successful. Mm -hmm. She, Her way of coping with the environment there was not to react with fear, aggression. It was to go deep inside of herself. She would simply shut down. Mm -hmm. And when she first came to my home, I saw that same behavior. And I knew that it didn't really have anything to do with me personally. It had to do with her fears about leaving behind the people that she loved at Best Friends, the only place where she had ever been safe. And I knew it was going to take her a while to begin to feel safe. And I also knew that it wasn't dependent only on me. I have five other dogs. And right. um, I, I could see from the first day that Little Red came home, the dogs were going to be her solace. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, in fact, I was going to ask about beefcake and, and, and ask, well, did you have the choice or, or would it have been appropriate to take him as well as her protector and her, 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 her sidekick? You know, by the time Little Red was available for adoption, Beefcake had already been adopted. Oh, how nice for him. Yeah, so he had a home before she did. And her companion before Beefcake, her first companion, was Handsome Dan, the victory <laughs> dog. And they were such a bonded pair. So I knew about her relationships with other dogs. So I knew that when she got to my home, she was going to look to the other dogs for solace. And before I was able to adopt her, I had to take all five of my dogs to best friends for her to meet them. And I did that. And I could see that she was nervous, but much more at ease with dogs than with people. Understand. So, because even though the other dogs around her at Vic, some of them had been transformed or forced into being vicious killer fighter dogs. No dog ever really sets out wanting to be that. She didn't have fear of dogs. It was men that she was, or humans that she was, that she was terrified of because of how they had tried to push her to be something she never had it in her to be. That's exactly right. Now She was very afraid of humans. When you think about people that are incarcerated, you know, solitary confinement and the horrible things that happen in prison and how many of them can shut down, and particularly kids in foster care, children move from one place to another who've suffered terrible neglect and abuse and have to figure out how to survive in one changing environment after another. When you talk about her, it has that feeling of that kid that some person just sees this this kid, this dog has been through so much. Let me just be that safe haven and let that kid and that dog just unfold as best they can at their own rate and whatever they can do and whatever they need, I'll just quietly be there. That seems to me in the movie, The Champions, which obviously being a documentary depicts you as you truly are, it seems to be a kind of a, of a motto and it's a, it's very inspirational to the rest of us. Some of us are a little less self, a little more selfish and a little less patient. You know, I thank you very much for that. I saw immediately that Little Red would not respond if I crowded her. Yes. And that I had to just sit back and let her begin to feel safe. And because I have other dogs, um, it wasn't hard to do that. You know, she was making her way in this new world, and she did not and could not stand to be pushed. So I never did. You know, I was upset and I felt very bad for her when I would see her traumatized still. But I kept thinking to myself, um, if it's a mistake, I'll know it. And just give her some time. Because I had um, made contact with some of the other families who had had their dogs for one, two years before I ever got Little Red. And they told me the stories. They went through the exact same thing. Paul with Cherry, um, Heather and Mark with Handsome Dan. So I knew that this was not unique to me. This was unique to dogs who had suffered from PTSD. So I was able not to take it personally, just to let her have the time. And 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 obviously your other dogs were great ambassadors. One dog in particular was her champion early on. His name is Cheeto, and he's also a dog I adopted from Best Friends. And he was 
um, very, very um, patient with her too. He would often, when she was sad or um, she would go to a corner in my house and just turn her back to the room and shut down. And he would go and sit beside her or lay beside her and just quietly stay there. And his presence really helped to bring her around. And um, about two and a half years after I had her, we did a reunion at um, Best Friends with uh, several, well, I think maybe there were seven or eight of the dogs. And there was a dog that I was going to adopt from Handsome Dan's Rescue. They run a pit bull rescue. And her name is Jules. And so I picked Jules up at the reunion, and I only had Little Red with me. And Jules and Little had an absolutely instant bond. They started playing together. Jules is the exact opposite of Little. She's had some rough times in her life, but she is an incredible optimist. She wakes (laughs) up happy every single day. And that was intoxicating to Little. You know, they would play, they would hang out together, and um, they became really good playmates. And Little really missed that because I have older dogs and some small dogs and she likes to pity play and Jewel pity plays. And she just, you see them playing in the film and it's so funny. That's just how they are. They roll, they bounce, they jump. And that was something that really loosened her up to, I think her full potential. And really I, I, I don't take much credit for it. It's the dogs who helped her. Yeah, but it was, but it's you giving that space and you having that generosity of spirit and that kind of tolerance and patience for something which you are letting, letting go of any control of. And I guess that's really the message of it is that when you adopt dogs that have been through a hard time, you can't force your agenda on them. You, you can wish and hope for them to find peace and happiness. They're probably never going to wake up like Jules and wake up happy every day looking <laughs> for fun. And we, many of us love to have that kind of dog. But really bless those people that are, that are willing to take on dogs that on their best day are never going to feel that high. But to let them at least find some inner peace, which I really think was the whole point of those Vic dogs being rehabilitated and finding homes, is that they get to have peace in their life, which they'd never had before. I'm, I'm so pleased to meet you, Susan. So hopeful that everyone can come into the city and see the champions on October 15th. And I wish you and Little Red at least another five years of the life you have together and that you have with your other dogs. It's a a wonderful story and your generosity towards the rest of us prying and poking around and learning from you is also a wonderful thing. So thank you for that. Thank you. And I hope people will enjoy the film. I know they will. Thank you so much. Take care. We'll be right back after this quick word with Stephanie Matera and Wheels of Hope from the Alliance for New York City's Animals. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Halo, holistic, natural cat and dog foods, which are made from real ingredients you can recognize. Halo uses real meat in their kibble, no rendered byproducts, chicken meal, or chemicals. And their new grain-free recipes like Vigor give you even more healthy choices for your pet's dinner, while Daily Greens brings vitamins and digestive enzymes into your dog's diet. Halo is a private company partly owned by Ellen DeGeneres, where they emphasize giving back by making donations to shelters through freekibble.com for pets awaiting a forever home. Stephanie, welcome to Dog Talk. Delightful to meet you. The New York City Mayor's Alliance has always seemed 
a fascinating and mysterious organization in New York City. And I understand it sort of advocates for animals in shelters or helps many rescues in shelters, but that's pretty vague of me. And rather than, you know, learning it all ahead of time, I imagine a lot of people are like me who don't really understand the mayor's alliance of what to whom and where. I'd love you to explain it to us. Great. So thank you for having me, Tracy. I'm really excited to be here. The Mayor's Alliance for New York City's Animals was founded 10 years ago. Um, and what we've done since that time is really created a coalition. And we helped the rescue groups pull animals from Animal Care Centers of New York, which was formerly known as Animal Care and Control. Right. And so through that, we've been able to save 275,000 lives since Whoa. we started. Whoa, in 10 years. Yeah. So, it, so when in I say decades, it was exactly a decade ago that I had the pooch party to do with the dog Bible being published at W Hotel. And people talked to me about the Mayor's Alliance and some of the members came, but I, it would, I didn't realize it was its absolute infancy. It had just been born. I knew that New York City Animal Care and Control, as it was then called NYACC or something, was just the saddest, I guess, worst, one of the worst shelters in the country. It was high kill and just disorganized and depressing. And the Mayor's Alliance was as I understood it, kind of a ray of hope. And you've gone way beyond that in the 10 years. Thank you so much. Yes, we're really proud of our partnership. Animal Care Centers of New York has been an incredible partner to us. They work with over 250 New Hope partners, which are the groups that pull from the city shelters to help lower the euthanasia rates. And 150 of those are in our network. And we're a nonprofit, so we rely solely on private donations and the donations of individuals and corporations, even though our names as mayors were actually not a government or city agency. So was that kind of a mistake? I mean, when you were first founded, we didn't have a billionaire mayor. I mean, you could sort of think if it was Bloomberg, he's the kind of good guy. His daughter is very involved, uh, not just in horse showing, but also in, in animal welfare issues. One could imagine that he just said, oh, here's a bunch of money, but it wasn't that mayor. And it really has nothing to do with the mayor. So why did, why is that in the name still? I mean, if Animal Care and Control changed their name, why did you guys keep yours? That's a great question. So we have discussed potentially um, making the name Alliance for New York City's Animals, but we haven't officially done that just yet. But we did use mayors in the beginning because we wanted to give it that credibility and backing so people would know that we were working collaboratively with city government to help animals and help save lives. But we always, when we explain it to people, we are not a government agency. So we always clarify it when communicating with the public. And, and of course, in a sense, in a kind of crazy way, it puts you on the defensive because here you are doing only good deeds, doing things that everybody would love you to be doing. And it's, you know, the really the only hope that these animals have. So many of them are street animals and, and the city government shelter system is, is overburdened, overtaxed, probably underfunded and understaffed. And yet you have to explain, okay, we're not them, we're not them, but that just is our name. So none of my beeswax, but it'd be great to get the mayor's name out if the mayor isn't directly involved. Just because sometimes it's good, I guess, when an organization is starting to get that imprimatur of, you know, we are, the, we're, we're real, we're not just a bunch of crazy people, you know, that are backyard saviors or something. But I guess we all are a little doubtful about government and government's involvement in many things. And I guess government's involvement in animal care and control is never really works that well. I mean, is there any place that you know of in the country where the city does or the town or the county does a great job? It seems to me it's all the private people and alliances like yours 
that are doing the real heavy lifting. I really can't speak to that. Uh, you know, as a, I'm a volunteer spokesperson for the Mayor's Lions Junior Cities Animals, and I've been with them for five years. And my experience is really focused on working with their organization. And I've met incredible people through this work. Uh, everyone's really committed. We've worked with a lot of wonderful corporations like Petco and Petco Foundation, um, you know, to really bring these events to the people. And that's why we really do partner with these great organizations. They have a huge social media following. We're able to get the word out about rescue and adoption. Uh, you know, only 30% of people in American households are rescuing. So when you think about it, there's still a huge opportunity to really educate the public on why adoption is the best option and not to buy animals from pet stores or to go to breeders. It's really preferable to go to shelters. There's amazing animals. I have four rescue pets of my own. And so I think we've done a lot of great work and I know a lot of other communities are very committed to helping animals, but I can only speak to what, what we've done. Well, that that's very diplomatic of you and diplomacy is great. I'm sure I could learn a whole lot from you and those listening are laughing rather loudly like, yeah, not so much opinion, a little bit more, you know, like look at the gray area. And I didn't even realize you were a volunteer. So you're a spokesperson and you're yeah. doing this interview and you're doing, I'm sure, many events where you have to show up, including Adopt-A-Palooza that we'll talk about. And you're totally volunteering. That's a that's a tough job, Stephanie, because, in fact, if people ask a question, and I ask it in all loving supportiveness, but it has a little potentially prickly bit to it, you have to be pretty careful, right? I mean, you're speaking for a group of people, all of whom have, you know, dedicated, a, just like you, years and years of their lives to this cause. Absolutely. And I definitely take my role extremely seriously. Um, you know, there's an old adage that says just because uh, volunteers don't get paid. It's not because um, they're not, they don't have a value. It's because they're priceless. So I, I've always kind nice. of believed that. Nice. And that's why I do volunteer. Um, but my training is from NYU. I actually have my master's in PR and corporate communication. Oh, my goodness. So, well, oh, you're very well trained. <laughs> oh, my lordy, lordy. You should PR, one of the places that gets $40,000 a month to, to fix problems or to make people sound wonderful. That's so that's very impressive. Thank you so much. So I'm, one of the things I always say, too, is that when you invest in education, you're not just investing in yourself, you're investing in your community. So for me to be able to take my education and then use it for social good and help animals uh, is really just a full circle moment for me and something that really brings me a lot of joy. So I, I feel very lucky. Well, I feel even more happy that I invited you to have one of the, the privileged founding member tickets to the to the dog film festival and to come to the pooch party i hope you'll bring one of your darling little rescues that would be so cool to have them on the green carpet and get their <laughs> picture taken and just have have a blast and most particularly the the animal psychic who's there any germani who is usually at the westminster dog show doing this for the handlers and the owners who want to know why did their dog not want to go in the ring which is sort of hilarious or why did they pee in the middle of the whatever when they were supposed to be being a show dog she could probably talk to a lot of the, the, the rescue dogs that are going to be at the party, of which many people have, and, and find out what, what are they thinking? What, what happened before now? We often wonder that about the rescues, right? How bad was it or was it not so bad, but you just kind of lost that home somehow? Oh, yeah. My boys, um, I have three dogs. 
here with me right now and my cat. Um, I call them my office assistant, <laughs> but um, I don't. <laughs> One's in my lap um, because he's my barker. So I was like, if I pet him while he's sitting in my lap, I think he'll be good during this radio interview. <laughs> <laughs> he's been great. I mean, fantastic. About that, you said, anyway, I am really, truly, genuinely thrilled that you're coming. I had no idea you were a volunteer. I thought you were paid because it's a proper organization. And some of the people are paid, I'm sure. I mean, it's a very grown-up organization. And I don't mean that a volunteer yeah. is not grown up, but it's, you know, a volunteer has some limitations on how much dedication they can give in hours because they also have to pay the rent and they probably have some other kind of a day job usually. But I'm wondering, so I'm exactly. thrilled you're coming, hoping you'll bring one of the guys. I mean, heck, you could bring them all if you if you had it. You, you're welcome to bring somebody else as a handler if you want. They can be in the, there's going to be a, a mini dog <laughs> fashion show. Ada Nieves, who does so much work with the Mayor's Alliance, she's mad for yeah. the Mayor's Alliance. She said to me, nobody does better because you spread the wealth everywhere. So when, you know, money comes in or there's somebody wants to do good, the Mayor's Alliance is there to help funnel it to the good of which there are so many in New York, rescue groups, saviors of various kinds, whether it's feral kittens or or dogs, the Satos dogs from Puerto Rico. Um, you do such an amazing job of that. And then the, the film festival on the Saturday has a lot of films that have rescue as one of their themes. But let's talk about Adopt-a-Palooza because that – is such a, a cool and amazing and very New York event. I know you did a very successful one in Brooklyn, but in on September yeah. 20th, which is a Sunday, you're going to have another one in Union Square. And as I understand it, your previous ones have been just huge. Thousands of people showed up and tons of of vans and, and cars with dogs, and I guess cats too, for Rescue Bidewee, which is the official beneficiary of the Dog Film Festival is going to have a big old adoption van and lots of animals there to meet. Exactly. So Adopt-A-Palooza is New York City's original mega pet adoption event. And so we bring it annually to Union Square. And, and now actually we've been doing it twice a year because we've just had such great success. And as you mentioned, we did it for the first time in Brooklyn just about a month ago. Um, the reason why these events are so important is we get about 75% of the animals adopted. Wow. It's really key to get the animals in front of the people. And so that's really their best chance. And as you know, Union Square is a hotbed of shoppers, farmers yes. market, commuters yes. coming up through the subway. So it's great. Some, you know, a lot of people come prepared looking to adopt and other people, you know, have been thinking about adopting. And here we are, you know, making it really um easy and accessible for them to see and meet our animals. So on September 20th, we'll have 300 dogs, cats, and rabbits for adoption. Oh, bunnies. Yes, and they make great pets. And Especially in New York City. Of our group. Great apartment pets, super apartment pets. Yes, you can litter box train them. Um, they're very, very intelligent animals um, and very, very sweet. So we will have, as I mentioned, about 40 groups there. Uh, which is wonderful for them as well to raise awareness about the work that they do. And it'll be from 12 to 5. We'll have activities for kids like face painting. Um, we'll have, you know, the Office of Emergency Management there teaching you about how to be prepared for your pets in an emergency, microchipping, licensing for dogs. So it's really a great way not only to adopt, but if you already have a pet to come and learn more about being a responsible pet owner and really getting educated on what you need to do to take really the best care of your pets that you can. Now, when you say that 75% of them get adopted, I know that, that one of the things that puts people off to adoption is that in a, 
in a county shelter or a city shelter, it's pretty cheap and pretty easy. You come in, you say you want the animal. Maybe you have to fill out a form that you're not a felon, but maybe that's irrelevant because actually it should be irrelevant. Um, What has that got to do with pet ownership? Nothing really. And you can go home with the animal, as I understand it. I mean, I've adopted some of my wives even from Southampton Shelter. It was, I don't know, like a license fee, $15. And, you know, they, you just fill out a form. and like, that was easy. I mean, maybe now considered too easy. Maybe it's not that easy anymore. Whereas a, a, other groups, some foster rescue groups make it so onerous, Stephanie. And we all understand the reasons. They've seen so many abandoned, abused dogs and cats. They've seen all the heartbreak. They want to make sure the person who's adopting is, quote unquote, the right person and is going to offer the animal the very best by their view of what the very best is. But it's often kind of creates a barrier to adoption because, okay, you fill out a four-page form. We can all do that. And the house visit, okay, if they want to do that. But then more and more questions. But how many hours will you be out of the house? And how fenced is your yard? And what are you going to feed? How do you adopt out 75% of these animals? Is it on the spot or do people fill out applications and they get contacted later? Is it Does it kind of cut through some of the red tape and make it easier? That's a great question. So each of our groups has their own protocol and processes. So really when adopters are going around meeting animals, they're getting also a feel for the different groups and what their rules are and how they're going to be vetted and, and checked. All the groups will have you fill out an application. All of them will require a fee, but that fee can vary by the group that you choose. They're all going to ask you for your license and identification and a reference. You definitely need a character reference when you're adopting a pet. It's very important. And a vet check. A lot of them will ask you to provide a vet reference because if you have had pets in the past, we want to know that you did take good care of them, that they were up to, uh, up to date on their, you know, required vaccinations and things like that. So I really think that they're not asking a lot of people to, to adopt an animal, but it is a commitment. And so you need to be aware of those things. And I think if we made it too easy, maybe people wouldn't take adoption as seriously as they should, because animals can live, as you know, depending on the type of animal you have, dogs often 15 years. So that is a, is a pretty big commitment. And so you want to make sure that you know what you're getting into. Um, and whether they're a same-day adoption or not, that also depends on the group. Some groups do adopt same-day. And that's wow. why we're able to, yeah, we're able to report on the high, you know, adoption numbers by the end of the day because a lot of them did go home. And that's great for the yeah. animals because they spent their last night in a rescue or shelter or foster home. They went home. So that's great. And others, you know, might take a few days. Um, but if you really want a pet, I think it's worth the effort and the time that you have to put in. I think that's a good point. And I guess meeting the people in charge of the individual smaller or even medium or large size rescues, they're looking at you eye to eye. I think there's not enough human contact, forget contact with animals in the modern world. So if everything's done in cyberspace, and people are filling in forms online and answering things in email. The people running the rescue or shelter, they never set eyes on the potential adopter. They rarely even talk to them. And I'm sure that makes the person giving the animal to its new home a little wary. Because as we know, on the Internet, anyone can claim to be anything. You know, I mean, cyber, you know, like falsehoods kind of thing. So I would think that being able to look them in the eye and sort of shake hands and see how they touch or deal with the dog or cat has to 
add a kind of level of comfort for the for the people that have been looking after these animals and want them to go to the best place or for the adopter to understand the level of commitment and dedication that the volunteers have because they're all volunteers in really advocating for that pet to get the best possible placement. And I guess when you do that love exactly. it for a sight thing, you know, we've all had that happen with pets. I'm sure some of your boys, you looked at them and you were like, the ding, the ding, that's it. <laughs> and you, who can explain it? It's just nutty, but it happens. And I guess to be able to do it face to face is pretty cool. It's really, it's really pretty cool. When you said the number earlier that 30% of American homes, only 30% have a rescued pet. Do you mean of all mm-hmm. households or of households with a pet? Households with a pet. Wow. That's surprising to me. I sort of thought you meant all households, and why don't we encourage more people to have pets, which is all good by me. You're saying, (laughs) you know, like, what, you people don't have a dog? You know, I meet people like that periodically. It's very disconcerting. They look at me funny, like, what do you do for a living? Or, oh, what's the dog film festival? And I say, do you have a dog? And, And they go, no. And you think, you don't? Of course, there are lots of humans that live animal free. That's a perfectly valid choice, but I'm sure lots more people could be encouraged to give it a try. You might like it. (laughs) Only 30% of those who have animals, only 30% came from shelters. God, I'm amazed because I thought I really did think it was more than that. Yeah, I did too. And I think maybe because I've been in this little bubble of rescue, you know, I'm not really, I just always think about it, but I guess maybe the general public hasn't been as well educated as they should be. And there maybe aren't enough awareness campaigns. And so we have a lot of um, room for improvement, yes. but it's, it's good. And um, we just had an amazing event. I'm sure you heard about it. NBC's Clear the Shelters um, last weekend. And it was incredible. I mean, 20,000 animals found new homes because Woo. the media was wow. raising awareness. And um, people were lining up York, the night before. Was that just in New York City? No, that was nationally. Wow. Um, and so what they did is they leveraged their local affiliates and you know, did a lot of promo in advance. Um, and then people were lining up the night before to adopt animals. And maybe some of them were people who never thought about rescue. So, you know, I think we're moving in a good direction and it's great to have media partnerships and and your show as well, getting the word out. Well, unfortunately, I think I'm often preaching to the converted, but that's okay. It's okay (laughs) that all of us have that extra level of awareness. It's like, you only have two dogs? I don't understand. You couldn't have room for a third plus a cat? You know, look at you. You're living in an apartment and you're already, you got four. So I think everyone could, we could all add an extra mouth to feed. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't hoit. And, and I don't know, it could be an inspiration to your next door neighbor. You know, if you can't fight them, join them. More, more pets in, in more places is better. Stephanie, I'm so looking forward to meeting you and I hope one or more of your, of your boys at the, at the, pooch party for the dog film festival and hoping that you can sneak away for the whole day on Saturday, October 3rd and see all the movies. They're going to just boggle your mind. They are just so funny and touching and original and interesting. And it's going to be a pretty cool experience. I can't wait to meet you. And a thousand thanks for what you're doing as a volunteer. Uh, You're so polished and so charming. And of course, we we have to give NYU some credit for that and also your own dedication. You're very lucky to have such, <laughs> Thank a, you. such a fancy spokesperson for free. Thank you so much. You have a great day, and I look forward to seeing you very soon. Thank you so much. 